Well, last week we considered, uh, we discussed quite a, a, a quite, a, um, we spent quite a lot of time discussing Saul's person, both his uh, outward positives and what is his, um, what we saw were some of his shortcomings. But we also considered God's uh, sovereignty and providence and His mercy in the uh, choosing of Saul to be this king. Uh, to rule over the people. We learned, uh, we saw how what, it, what appears to be everyday happenstance, common things, ordinary things, nonetheless God uses in his providence to work his purposes, to bring glory to his name, to be merciful and, and to um, further the good of his people. We saw then with the providence of God in choosing Saul, in directing his path, the, the, the three donkeys that God lost. And this is God's pattern all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is God's pattern in history. He, he sovereignly chooses people. He sovereignly uh, orchestrates. Uh, it's the word that... Uh, that, that that for me most clearly illustrates this. God as this great conductor orchestrating everything and, and bringing about his purposes. And this should delight our hearts. Before we, we get on to this passage, this should delight our hearts to understand that our daily lives, no matter how common and ordinary they are, for those of us who are the Lord's people, we know that God is working in miraculous ways, that nothing in our lives is uh, common, let's say, or ordinary, that everything uh, works itself into this extraordinary and, and, and glorious uh, tapestry that is God's eternal purposes in saving a people for his son. So when you go to your work tomorrow, when you uh, have that uh, conversation with your family member, when you go out shopping, you, we need to realize that all of it is a part of this great work that God is doing in advancing his kingdom in our daily lives. It might seem small, but it is nonetheless joined together with this great redemptive plan. Today we, we continue looking at, uh, at Saul's life. We'll look a little bit deeper at, at his anointing, uh, the anointing of the first king of Israel. And it is, it is important for me to emphasize this because I need to remind myself of this every single week as we've been going through, through the book of Samuel. Uh, I don't know if it was last week or the week before I, I mentioned uh, those words of Paul, that everything that is written is written for our good, even this passage. And another thing that I need to convince myself and, and drill deeply into my heart, because as uh, our brother Ryan was saying yesterday, we become too familiar, we, we take things for granted. We need to remind ourselves that the whole of Scripture is breathed out, is inspired by God. 
that we, as we come to this passage that uh, is seemingly just a record, we're, it is not just a record uh, that is, was important for, for the, the people of Saul's day or for the people of David's day. It's not just a record that was important for the people of Israel in the Old Testament, but it is important for us. And that's the point that we need to understand. It is a slice of history. It really happened, but it's here that we may see, uh, that we may understand, that we may be built up. So as we come to this study, or to, the, to a place like this in the Bible, we need to remember ourselves, remind ourselves, not remember, we need to remind ourselves of these convictions. And these convictions are, are not mine. Some of you know our, the, uh, the pastor, uh, Scottish pastor Alistair Beck, and he mentions these four convictions in, uh, as we come to passages like this. And it is important for us to remember them. There are other convictions, I'm sure, but these four convictions in particular. First conviction that we need to have is the unity of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, all of it is one record it tells us about the fall of mankind, the chaos, the brokenness of the universe that has flowed from that fallenness. But in the midst of all of that, it also tells us the, the great redemptive purposes of God, his plan of salvation, the purpose of God to put together, to bring together people for his very own. The second conviction that we need to have as we come to a passage like this, as Alistair Begg says, is that this unity exists not because it is a collection of religious history and religious documents, but it is a unity that is found in the fact that it is one word from God. As we considered this morning, it is one word for God about the one salvation of God in one Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, the purpose is clear, is to reveal to us Jesus Christ. He says that the third conviction is that we need our Bibles to understand human history and to understand our own little histories and our place in history. And fourth and finally, he says, the conviction uh, that, as we often say, that the Bible is a book about Jesus. And so when we take our eyes from Jesus and we lose our way around the universe, as he says, but we lose our way around the Bible, and so no one... Uh, so one of the questions, as he says, one of the questions that we ought always to ask is, how will this record of things lead me eventually to Christ? We need to see Christ in these passages. And, this, and, and I think it is clear. It is clear where Christ is in this passage. Here we are being presented with the first king of Israel and his shortcomings. God's anointed, first, the, the first of God's anointed kings. And as we'll see, there is an ultimate anointed, an ultimate Messiah to come. So, last week we considered how Samuel brought um, Saul into, the, into this dinner, how he gave him the best portion that had been reserved to him. And in the morning of that, uh, uh, after that, uh, that dinner, Samuel and Saul, we can see in verse um, uh, in verse uh, 27 of chapter 9, they were going down to the outskirts of the city and, and Samuel wanted to have a, a private time 
Uh, he wanted to anoint uh, Saul, but he wanted it to be private. He didn't want it to be public yet. In God's uh, purposes, this was to be a private event. Uh, and he asks Saul to send his servant ahead of us, uh, ahead of them, and he goes, and, that, and then Saul anoints Samuel with oil. Saul's servant being gone, we have now this private uh, anointing. Only Samuel and Saul are privy in this moment. Samuel, Saul is being anointed as king. Uh, anointed, by the way, you know this. Uh, anointed in, in Hebrew is the Messiah, is the word Messiah. Saul is to be the Messiah of Israel. An uh, imperfect incomplete, one that leaves a longing for another Messiah, but he's the Messiah, he's the anointed by God. And uh, just by, uh, on, a, on a side note, uh, as such, you remember when we were going through Matthew, that event of, of uh, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan and the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus, uh, anointing him as such, uh, he is, was being there. He was being there, anointed privately, kind of like David was within his family. Not uh, for the whole of Israel to know at that time, but in the presence of the prophet, the last prophet, in this case John the Baptist. You see these parallels, and and I think we're we're meant to 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 look at them and understand that God is not just uh, recording for us a piece of history in Samuel ten. But he's actually setting up the stage for Jesus to come into the picture, not as the, uh, another Messiah, not, not as another king of Israel, but as the true, ultimate, better king of Israel. Oil, we all uh, probably know, re represents the, the, the authority of God, the, the, the setting apart of God. It comes from, uh, it is first introduced to us in Exodus 30, uh, from verse 23 to, 23 to 33. It serves this dual purpose. Number one, to, to signify consecration and being set apart. Only the utensils in the temple and the priests were to be anointed. But secondly, it serves to signify the equipping, uh, enabling power of the Spirit of God, of the Holy Spirit of God over that person. And in essence, we have here in, in 1 Samuel 10, uh, Saul being anointed, being set apart to and by God for this special service, for this uh, servant position of being king over his people. Look at, verse, uh, at the end of verse 1, uh, how Samuel uh, refers here to this anointing. He anoints he kisses him. The aspect of kissing, we might consider it just for a little bit. It might just be a, a sign of uh, endearing love on the part of Samuel to Saul. It's clear that Samuel, uh, throughout, uh, throughout the, the record, uh, it is clear that up until a point, Samuel was very, uh, as, uh, very, kind and affectionate towards Saul. It might just be that. It might be as well a, a, a sign of homage. Uh, Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry. It might be a, a sign of Samuel saying to him, I recognize you as my king. 
or as the as the God's anointed prince over his people or commander over his, his people. And, and uh, what Samuel proclaims is quite telling. We'll look at a couple of things here in this, in this verse. Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Some translations instead of commander say prince. What is clear is that Samuel has still not been able to call him king. For some reason, Samuel is not able to put that into, into, into words. He's the commander. He's the prince. But, but notice this. As God's, Saul is God's agent. He has the anointing. He has the, the authority. But Saul is only to be a prince, a commander over his inheritance, over the people of God. The first truth we see in this is that God chooses whoever he wills. It, it was God that chose uh, Saul. It wasn't, it wasn't Samuel that put his heart on Saul, that, that looked and, and chose Saul. It wasn't the elders of Israel that demanded the king, that, 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 that called a general election, a plebiscite, and, and, and nominated Saul as the king. It was God that chose him. It was God that anointed him. It was God that put him forward. It was God's prerogative. It was God's choice. But the second truth here is that although Saul is to be the commander, the prince, the king, uh, eventually will be called the king as well, although Saul is all of these things, it is quite clear that the people are not Saul's people. Even here at the beginning of, of the monarchy, God makes it quite clear, you are being anointed to be commander over my inheritance. You are being anointed to be the prince, the king over my people. It's God's people. They are not Saul's people. They are not uh, Samuel's people. It's God's people. And Saul plays a role. But he plays a role as a, a vice, uh, 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 an under-shepherd, a vice-regent, uh, 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 a second-in-command over the people. Ultimate authority belongs to the owner, the possessor of that people. And that's clear uh, at, right at the beginning of the monarchy in Israel. Whatever the king is to be, it is God's people. And he is to rule them as such. And, that, and, and in this way, we can, we, can, um, we can make a few parallels to our own, our own lives. Ministry-wise, elders of a church, the church is not my church, it's not Peter's church, it's no pastor's church. They, we are made to be elders over God's church with all the consequences that come from that. But it's not just in the realm of, uh, of church. Uh, it is in the realm of the family. A husband is the head of the household. But ultimately, that, that, uh, that household is to be ruled and, and, uh, and that family is to be uh, ordered according to God's precepts. It's his prerogative. Same thing even applies to the civil government in a nation that perhaps would be more Christianized. Uh, any ruler, a king, a prime minister, a president, whatever it is, sh uh, 
one that has a correct interpretation of his place, he would never lord it over his people, he would uh, over the people, because he understands that he is in a servant position. We are not to build our own kingdoms, but his kingdom. We are to be faithful stewards. That's perhaps the right word to express here with regards to the king of Israel. He is not being placed over the rule, uh, as a ruler over all, all. He's being placed, and that's God's design, as a steward, as a servant. And God reminds him, or God reminds him through Samuel, that it is the Lord's possession. Even though Israel has become a monarchy, Saul will be the king only under God, and Saul will be held accountable by God in the way that he deals and how he uh, conducts himself in this office that he's being appointed to. And that's reality with elders. And I would say to an extent, it is even the reality with us in our relationships with one another. How, how good it would be if we would remind ourselves day by day as we deal with one another, as we uh, have our struggles with one another, because we are all sinful, that we reminded ourselves that this person, that person... It's God's people. It's God's possession. That it's God's inheritance. That it is God's uh, precious possession. That the blood of Christ, the priceless blood of Christ was shed for that brother of mine that I'm really upset with. Not to take away the being upset. Not to take away the, perhaps the need to ask for forgiveness or, 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 or pardon and, uh, and the need to, to reconcile. Not to take away from those things but to frame our relationships with one another in the, in the reality that as the people, are, uh, as, as Christians, we are the people of God. And my brother, my sister is God's inheritance. And the precious blood of Christ was shed for him. And God loves him very dearly. Perhaps he would refrain. He would, he would refrain us from being so... Uh, harsh towards one another. Perhaps, uh, no, I'm not saying perhaps even for certain, if we reminded ourselves of this in our relationships, we would be much more patient. We would be much more careful not to cause our brother and sister to stumble, but to gently build him up. Because that is the service that we, that, we, that we perform to God. As we build one another up, we're, we're doing it, yes, for the good of, of my brother, but as well as, well as, a, uh, as a service to God, as a, as a desire to be instruments in God's hands and, and as a desire to be pleasing to God. I find it also interesting, the, the, the way that Samuel here says that we are God's inheritance. Again, I, I've mentioned this in a, in a sense already, but... For God to call us his inheritance is not something that comes natural to us, is it? We, we're accustomed to, and we, it is much more, uh, it's much easier, at least for me, I speak personally, but I think it's, it's general. We're must, much more uh, accustomed to considering God our inheritance, to considering God uh, our, our, our treasure, but not seeing ourselves as treasure. 
perhaps because we see rightly our fallen nature, dead in sins and trespasses, because we understand that we are not worthy the, of, uh, of any uh, um, good, of any uh, blessing in, in and of ourselves. There is nothing in us to commend us to, to, to God. How can we be an inheritance? The, Pur the Puritans, the hymn writers, they used to have this warm theology, this, this unworthy vermin-like uh, theology in speaking. And it's not wrong. Sometimes, I don't know about you, I wonder if, it's, if they overdid it. Because Scripture also speaks about us, the people of God, as the, the apple of God's eyes, as an inheritance. And it's not because we are worthy. It's not because we have anything good in us, in and of ourselves, but because of what Christ did. In light of the New Testament, our value comes from what Christ did. And we become a valuable treasure, an inheritance to God through Jesus. The, son's, the Son bought her people through, by his own priceless, inestimable blood. The Son bought us through his death. And God the Father has given all who come to him, to him, through Christ. And we become a people of incredible value. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. Israel is meant to be a, 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 a type of what the church becomes in the, in the New Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.20 says that the Lord has taken you and, bought, and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people, an inheritance as you are this day. This is the work of Christ. Or Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 9 and 10. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a, in a desert land and in a, the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. So we need to balance out our worm theology. It's not wrong, but we need to balance it out and realize that there is Value, not because we're valuable in and of ourselves, but because of what Christ did. There is value in the people of God. And we must be careful how we treat one another. We must be careful with God's people because they are precious to him. Each and every one of them. The ultimate price was paid. But this is verse 1. This is a, a sort of an introduction. As Saul uh, is anointed, then Samuel goes on to give him uh, three signs that this is truly God's doing. That what would happen next would, would be so extraordinary that Saul would have no doubt that, that it would be clear and evident to him that God was behind this. The first sign was that at Rachel's tomb, he would uh, meet two men who would tell him that the lost donkeys, donkeys had been found. The second sign next is that he would meet three men on their way to worship at Bethel. These men would recognize the anointing of Saul's life and give him a gift of two loaves of bread, which is significant. That, that bread, that... Uh, those young goats, those kids, as they, say, uh, they used to, 
to, to translate it in the in the AV, uh, and though uh, and that wine uh, wine was meant to be for the sacrifice, and this kind of represents to uh, Saul that actually he is a part of of God's plan now. And thirdly, finally, Saul uh, would meet a group of prophets returning from the. Uh, from worshiping God on the mount, on the hill, and, uh, and they would be playing their instruments, rejoicing in God. And at this point, Saul sa uh, Samuel says that Saul would prophesy, that the Spirit of God would rush upon him, and that he would prophesy with the prophets and become another man. And this is interesting, and this, this is the point where I want to spend a little bit more time today, because I think this is the... the uh, the most significant point here for us to consider. What does it mean that Saul was made another man? What does it mean that he was, as it says, uh, they're given uh, another heart? Or, um, Well, to be another man means to be another person. But that's not clearly the case. Saul continued being Saul. But it implies something. It implies that he would have something of his life transformed, certainly, that he, that he was, uh, had something uh, so significant that it could be construed as being another man, verse 6, or in verse, as it says in verse 9, having another heart. The first thing that comes to my mind, and I think that is quite natural, is that, well, Saul was saved. This is the point where Saul was re regenerated, uh, uh, born again, uh, to use uh, New Testament language uh, from John uh, chapter 3, or the, the, the taking out the heart of flesh and putting a heart of, uh, of uh, taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh uh, in the language of Ezekiel. The problem is, that doesn't seem to be the case with, with Saul, does it? The verb used here uh, about the spirit rushing in, the spirit coming upon Saul, is a verse that, that is not the same as indwelling spirit. It is a verse that is used of Samson, for instance, when he, the, spirit, the spirit rushed upon him and gave him uh, unusual strength to meet this crisis in the, in the history of Israel, to fight off and knock off uh, the, the Philistines. The same is true of Saul in another occasion. The same is true of, of David in, in chapter 16, verse 13. It, the, the rushing in of the spirit doesn't uh, quite seem to be the same thing as the spirit indwelling believers and making them born again. God sometimes in the Old Testament came upon specific people and empowered and enabled them, equipped them for specific tasks. Another clear example is, uh, is um, uh, Bezalel. Uh, he, God came, or the Spirit of God came upon him and gave him this supernatural ability to work with metals, this craftsman uh, capacity to build, uh, to make the Ark of the Covenant. It is clear, whatever change happened here, it is clear from Saul's life that this was not regeneration. Because Saul does not move forward. Saul does not, uh, he actually regresses. 
That is not true of reg- uh, spiritual regeneration. One, a person that is born again, his affections change. His desires change. A true believer is one that, that, that presses on and uh, he, he, he perseveres just as much as God is, is persevering him, but is one that is the spirit uh, ke- carries him and keeps him. And the, the, the clear sense, because we have the whole, of li- uh, the whole of Saul's life before us, is that he actually never lived a life in line with this regeneration. I think it, what Saul experienced, and that we're not going to be expounding that, but if you turn to Hebrews 6, it would be nice for us to read that. Hebrews 6, we find uh, something of what of what Saul experienced in this time when he became a new man, when the Spirit came upon him, when he prophesied. Hebrews 6, one of those uh, warning passages, verse 4 and 5, says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Whatever happened to Saul was not true spiritual regeneration. There is no grounds for us to believe, as some of our uh, some commentators and some preachers use Saul as an example, that uh, Saul was a regenerate person living carnally. There is no grounds for us to believe that uh, Saul was a man who knew God but did not pattern his life after God's will. Because according to the scripture, according to the New Testament, there are only two ways that evidence um, saving a saving uh, relationship with God. First is what we say, but secondly is what do we do. What we say and what we do. And what we do is evidence itself that what we say is true. If we say one thing but do another, if we act one way, uh, uh, if we profess one thing but yet act in a completely different way, it's proof enough that what we're saying is not true. That's... At all, all points in the, in the Christian life, we may fall, we may, we may backslide a bit, but, but the Christian momentum is one of, of growth. It's one of, uh, of growing holier and holier, more Christ-like, more righteous in the sight of the Lord. There is a seesaw kind of momentum and, and up and down, but that's what we see. And in Saul, we don't see that, do we? Because we see the end of his life was worse than the beginning. And the question for us is, is my life, is my profession of faith in, light, uh, in line with my, with my acting, with my working, with my life? Saul did some good to his country. When you, when you look at the, uh, at the history, as we will do, uh, of, uh, of Saul's reign, he did some good to his country, but by the end of it, he had made, made the mockery, he had brought shame to himself, and he ended in misery. 
his personal life and relationship with God was on a downward spiral because of sin and rejection and rebellion of God's towards God's words. And I don't want to water down this. You might seem converted. You might profess to be converted. You might profess to be a born-again believer. But if you give your life to sin and you, you remain unrepentant, it's proof enough for any person, no matter what you say, it's proof enough for anyone who truly knows their scriptures that you are not a believer because you are remaining unrepentant. You may comfort yourself by saying that you pray the prayer, that you were baptized once. You may comfort yourself by saying that you go to church every Sunday. But if your life, day by day, does not have the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, you have no reason to call yourself a believer. There is no such thing as a carnal believer. And you're living under delusion and fooling yourself. Because the way that we know that we are of God, that we are elect of God, is yes, by a faithful confession, but is secondly by a holy life. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Don't, don't get me wrong, but faith, as James says, faith is never alone. Faith is justified by its works. That's the way James says. That's, that's the thrust of our Lord's message in the, in the Gospels as well. There are many who will say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this and done that? But God says, I never knew you because you are workers of iniquity. Your fruits are clear. They are iniquitous works. But notice as well, Notice as well the, the specificity of these events, how clearly uh, God um, brought these things to bear, how clearly and, and, and specifically God uh, ordered these things. And they came to pass because in his servant, God def defined them as such. There's more that we could consider here, but as I said, that this, this is the one point that I want us to 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 take home, to, to hone in this evening. Israel's elders had requested a king. They wanted a king like the other nations. And God gave them Saul. He anointed them. It's God's king. And that's not to be played around. Don't touch the Lord's anointed and all of that. He was truly God's anointed. But he was a king after given by God, chosen by God, anointed by God, after the people's desire a king for an unbelieving people. And through the bitter and difficult experience that would follow, not only with Saul, but with David and Solomon and all of the other kings, on this downward trajectory that would create this longing sense of another king to come. That's the, when you read through the, through the, the, the historical books, through the prophets, you realize that in the same way that, that the, that the downward trajectory of the kings go, as they become more and more rebellious, more and more idolatrous, as the people become more and more uh, paganistic and, and, and syncretic in their practice, in the prophets you see this upwards uh, momentum of, of this longing, this desire for the one true 
anointed Messiah, the, the one true king that God would give. And God provided this king for Israel, Saul. But there is another king that God provided. And that day, we, we now, uh, that day that kind of mimics the, the day that, um, that Saul was presented as the king of Israel to the, to the people, it, we call it, uh, with relationship with the true king that God gave, we call it Palm Sunday. It is the, the, the day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and, and people received him. And they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. The son of David has come. Save, Lord, save. But the, the, the contrasts are so clear. Look at some of the contrasts. Just, for, just so if you're not convinced that, that, that there is a, 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 a line that goes through Genesis to Revelation. Look at the contrasts. Saul comes to Ramah, the house of Samuel. What is he looking for? A donkey. He comes to, the, to Ramah. Uh, the, the religious center of Israel at that time, and he, he's lost his donkeys, donkeys. How does Jesus enter Jerusalem? Riding on that donkey. That is a representation of the peaceful demeanor uh, of Israel's uh, king. Just as Jesus comes riding in, into Jerusalem um, into, in a donkey, Saul is unable to find his donkeys. Look at the parallel of the human impressiveness of Saul. What meets the eye, what the eye sees. Saul had everything going for him. Rich, young, uh, smart, tall, handsome, uh, from a good family. All of that going for him. Everything that the eye desires. Jesus comes, not with fleshly impressiveness, but with humility. Saul's impressiveness, fleshly impre impressiveness, uh, masked his incompetence, his inadequacies. Jesus appears in humility, but this humility is not masking incompetence, he's masking his majesty and glory and power. But ultimately, the most foundational difference between Saul and, and Jesus, the ultimate true king of Israel, is righteousness. Saul was not interested in righteousness. That's clear. He didn't want uh, anything to do with righteousness. His, his downfall, his disqualification was, uh, was brought about because even though he had uh, been uh, blessed by the Spirit of God to empower him to be king, he failed in the obedience element, as in verse 8, we, uh, I believe it's in, I don't have it turned there, but as Samuel says to him, see that you do what the Lord commands you. That was his problem. You see, he had the spirit, but he had no interest in being obedient. Isn't that a clear message for us in, uh, in 21st century church practice? How many of us want the experiences, but we want nothing to do with, with obedience? We want the power, but we don't want the, the, the zeal and the, and the submitting ourselves to God's, uh, to God's will. Isn't that the problem with, with uh, modern religiosity and, and uh, health and wealth, uh, Pentecostal kind of worship? 
It's all about the experience. It's all about wanting the, the, the feeling and the, and, the, and, the, and the moving of the spirit. But, but yet when it comes to obedience, when it comes to bowing our knees before God's will in his special revelation in the Bible, we want nothing to do with it. And that was the downfall of Saul. But here lies the contrast. Because Jesus Christ, he says, he says that my fruit is to the, the will of God. Yes, he was empowered by the Spirit. His li the life of our Lord Jesus was one of constant reliance upon the Spirit. He was one of constant reliance on, upon God. But he was also obedient. It was his delight to do the will of the Father. It was his delight to be obedient. My fruit, he says, John 4 is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see, that's the difference. Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly righteous. And he was, uh, unlike Saul's anointing, unlike Saul's experience of the Spirit that was temporary and fleeting and went away, the the. The presence of the Spirit with Christ was full, perfect, and uh, all through his life. Jesus preached, I, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news. God anointed, God the Father anointed Jesus the Son, God the Son, to be, uh, an, uh, to proclaim, to preach the good news. As Jesus himself says, quoting from Isaiah 61, it was his perfect personal righteousness that qualified them to be the bringer, the, the, the giver, the source of peace. Zechariah prophesied, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. One of those longings. Behold, that's the, that's the longing of the, of the Israelites in the, in the days of Zechariah after all the, the shortcomings of the monarchy. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the, fo the foal of, of a donkey. As we read uh, yesterday or about Christ, the one who is seated at the right hand, here is Christ, the one in Hebrews 1 verse 8 and 9 that has the scepter of righteousness the scepter of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the true king. And the question for us is, that, is this. For the Israelites, there was no option for them. They had no choice. They lived in that time where Saul was to be their king. They had to submit to him. Their elders, their leadership had rebelled against God and because of their incredulity, because of their unbelief, because of their worldliness, they were uh, to have Saul, whether they like it or not, whether they understood it to be sinful or they were rejoicing to see Saul become their king. They had no choice. It's God's king. It was God that placed them there and they were to be reverent to that, uh, to that office. But we have a choice. There is a king in this world, the ruler of this world. There is the devil, sinfulness, the world. In, and we, we can submit to it. And we can be obedient to that slave master. But what the gospel brings is the good news of another king. 
one that doesn't act as a tyrant, as a slave master, one, one that, that is not uh, oppressive and lording it over us, but a king that is humble and meek and lowly, a king that, that is loving, a king that is, that is perfect in, in his righteousness, a king that came not to, to, to be served, but to serve. Not to steal, as, as we saw last uh, a week or so ago. Not to take away, but to give. And the question for us, the choice for us, is what king will you follow? The Israelites had no choice, but you have the responsibility. You have the warrant. You have, you have the invitation to come to this king, to bow down before him, to kiss the son. Psalm 2. To give your life to him who gave his life for his people to become one of his subjects, to become one of, of the manifold inheritance that God the Father gave to God the Son. That is the question for us. That is the question for all of us. Are we submitting to the will of God? Are we bowing our knee to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Because unless we do, there is no forgiveness of sins. But if we do, we have not only the redemption, we have the pardon, we have the, the forgiveness of, of sins, we have the Spirit of God, not given a, a, a just a, a temporarily like it was given to, to these people in the Old Testament, but given as a a surety, as a, a earnest, as a guarantee that God will be with us not only today but until the end. As our brother said yesterday, that Christ gives us eternal life, and that is a guarantee that we He will see us through. Of the reign of Christ, it is said, one of those other prophecies that is uh, in the Old Testament, longing for this true king. And we'll finish by reading this in Micah chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. Turn there and we'll finish by, by looking at this. Of this king, of this reign, it is said, Micah chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. This king that is coming, this king that is unlike Saul, he shall stand and feed his flock. That shepherd language that we heard yesterday. Sorry if I'm mentioning it and some of you weren't here, but you can go online and listen to our brother Ryan Clark's uh, sermon. It was, it was marvelous. Uh, he says that this king that is coming, he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall abide. For now, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. Look at the promise. And they shall abide. It's that promise, isn't it, that we considered last, lastly uh, yesterday, that God that the, the chief shepherd, God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, he will see us through to the end. He shall, st he shall stand and feed us in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, we will stand. He will cause us to stand. He will lead us home. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth.
May the Lord bless us and help us to see him clearly.